Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. Today, we're looking at the next catastrophe. The coronavirus pandemic took the world by surprise, but experts had been predicting something similar for decades. So we'll be considering some of the other threats to look out for. When it comes to inventing new technologies that are ever more powerful, it seems like this century is going to be even more dangerous, and perhaps the next one will be more dangerous again. We'll find out why it's worth exploring new ways to protect humanity, even against unlikely threats. When you spend money to go and do difficult things like deflect asteroids, you learn things that you didn't know you were going to learn in areas that you otherwise would have no access to. And we'll ask what future-proofing lessons are being learned from the pandemic. The pandemic has brought into sharp focus is the importance to take these small steps ahead of time when you have the opportunity. Around the world, people are asking questions about how well their governments responded to the pandemic. Who knew what and when? Why were some countries better prepared than others? And could political leaders, who tend to be focused on winning the next election, be doing more to protect societies against future risks? All this has focused attention on other threats that, like the pandemic, have a low probability but a high impact from solar flares to asteroid impacts. The trendiest one at the moment inside the group of people that think about these things is the risk from artificial intelligence. Hal Hodson is technology correspondent at The Economist. He's been finding out what some of these other risks are and what, if anything, can be done about them. This is the idea that either the software that you train to do various useful things for humans kind of somehow develops a mind of its own, or perhaps slightly more realistically, the software is set to do something in such a way that it ends up destroying all the humans. And the canonical example of this is the paperclip maximizer, whereby you build a machine that's job is just to make lots of paperclips and you say, off you go, thank you very much. And the machine doesn't understand that you want these paperclips to be sold to humans. And so it turns all the humans into paperclips and the whole planet into paperclips and you, you've destroyed the world. OK, so the, the robots turning evil and taking over is one nightmare scenario we might need to watch out for. What are some of the others? So another big one are things that the sun does. So the sun can spit out a great big blob of plasma uh, very fast at the Earth and kind of mess with all of the electronics under the atmosphere. This is called a coronal mass ejection. And in the sort of the modern world, particularly, uh, this would be a huge disaster. These have happened in the past. But the last time that there was a really big one, a thing called the Carrington event, was about 150 years ago. And there were no electronics to wipe out. And so all we have is kind of diaries from gold prospectors saying, you know, I saw a scene of sublime beauty in the sky, but uh, nobody's iPhone went offline, so it was fine. There's loads of other ones. There's um, 
sort of super volcanoes, uh, Yellowstone National Park blowing up and blowing a good chunk of the planet off and coating the atmosphere in dust and blocking the sun and pushing us into nuclear winter. And there's even sort of uh, really, really far away things from sort of other astronomical bodies that aren't the sun called gamma ray bursts, where the idea being that if a very large event happened between sort of two large astronomical bodies very far away, they might emit a beam of energy that we would be just unlucky enough to be in the way of frying us and the planet. So a lot of this is just thinking about how delicate human life on Earth is. It doesn't feel like that day to day. It feels all rather robust. And we, you know, we get on our trains and we use the internet and it all seems fine. But in, in the grand scheme of things, it's all rather fragile. Okay, now there's clearly not a lot we can do about gamma ray bursters, you know, sterilising an entire corner of the galaxy, or supervolcanoes, indeed. There's not a lot we can do about those, is there? But when it comes to the things we can do stuff about, are you seeing governments becoming more focused on them, paying more attention to them because of the pandemic, or are they still too busy fighting the pandemic? I don't think that governments have quite started to get to this next stage But the pandemic is making governments reconsider how prepared they were for that. There is definitely the idea that you might have been able to spot the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 earlier. And the fact remains that nobody knows where this virus came from exactly. Nobody knows its complete origin story yet. And one of the things you might do is basically just massively step up the amount of viral genome sequencing that you do out in the world. The immediate focus, understandably, is improving medical surveillance and genetic analysis systems so that the course of the pandemic and the emergence of new variants can be monitored more closely. Such systems should also make it easier to spot other outbreaks in the future. When the next pandemic comes around, hopefully some of the lessons would have been learned and we'll be better prepared. Slavea Chankova is the healthcare correspondent at The Economist. I think everyone is quite burned by this one and... Countries like the US are setting up much more rigorous systems for surveillance, including genomic surveillance, which is disease surveillance 2.0, which I expect will be done much more widely uh, around the world for variants, but also when a new pathogen emerges to sequence it and share the knowledge with the rest of the world. Many people think the next one, again, may be a coronavirus, you know, in the next 10, 20, 50 years, but who knows? It, It may be a flu pandemic. It may be something completely different. But there are certain bugs that do seem to be more prone to having a pandemic potential. So they are being watched more closely. And there are some organizations which are trying to develop drugs. So have something on the shelf, which is broad spectrum. You know, as soon as one of those viruses emerges, they can start testing them on patients and see if they work. So we are not starting from square one as we did with this one. Let's turn to another risk that people worry about in the in the sort of medical field, which is antibiotic resistance and the prospect of antibiotics stopping working in the next few years. What would the consequences of that be? The consequences of that are already seen. And, and perhaps, you know, that was a bit of on the back burner, this crisis of antibiotic resistance because of the pandemic. But it will become more prominent because we, we do have several bacteria and you know fungal infections uh, which for which there are no drugs currently available and if those spread more widely then obviously you have people showing up with someone who has a scratch and gets infected and and then you 
you know, they, they become really sick, uh, you know, have to amputate or so on, and you have nothing to give them. We may find ourselves in such a situation sooner rather than later. The problem is that obviously you have to try to contain those bacteria and other bugs by uh, being very prudent with the use of antibiotics and, and so on. But you also need to develop new drugs. There is no no way around it. And what we've seen in recent years is that many of the startups that tried to develop them actually ended up going bankrupt because it's the kind of drug that you know has to sit on the shelf for use only on rare occasions um, when when you find that you know super resistant bug in in your hospital or, or whatever. So there is more thinking now of how you deal with drug development for such rare pathogens. So we are likely to see governments coming up with various schemes, such as paying not per course of treatment, but maybe paying you know, a large sum of money just to have that drug on the shelf, regardless of how many people are going to be treated with it. People who are worried about all sorts of risks are now saying to policymakers, hey, just as the pandemic caught you out and maybe you should have paid more attention to the people worried about that, you should be worrying about this risk over here as well. And presumably the antibiotic resistance crowd hopes that this is a window of opportunity to move that up the agenda. I think so. I mean, to some extent, though, from my observation is that every single researcher or you know laboratory, regardless of what they, they were working on, switched to tackling COVID-19. So on the science side, there was a bit of a diversion of resources for a while towards that, and understandably. But now that the course of the pandemic is becoming more clear, we have the vaccines. I think some of the scientific resources which went towards COVID-19 would be turned over to other threats, including antibiotic resistance. And probably some of the innovation that we've had in rapid laboratory testing, the fact that we have at home tests now, the technology for that will definitely lend itself to other pathogens as well. And of course, the surveillance systems that are being set up will be quite handy. So I think by and large, the resources that went to all sorts of things related to to the pandemic on the science side will be useful for other diseases in the future. Preparing for a hypothetical threat that might never happen can seem like a waste of time and resources, but the pandemic has provided an unwelcome reminder of the value of preparing for the unexpected. It's a wake-up call that suggests we should be paying more attention to other existential threats to the human species. I think that the pandemic has really reminded us about humanity's vulnerability. Toby Ord is a philosopher at Oxford University and the author of The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity, which came out, ironically, in March 2020, just as the pandemic began. We're in a situation where it's easy to forget our vulnerability. And I think that we're really reminded of that now. And it's something where just as uh, there is an immune response to, at an individual level, um, if you get the virus, then you'll be protected for some time afterwards as, as the body's immune system builds up its defenses. So I think that there's a social immune response where it's difficult for society to take seriously risks that may not strike in your generation. 
They tend to punish politicians who invest in such risks uh, if the thing doesn't happen. They say, ah, you know, you said this would happen and it didn't, even though it was actually the prudent thing to do. But we're in a, a brief time where there's this social immune response where we, we get it and we understand we want people to invest to protect our future. So I think we need to make the most of that and to make lasting policy choices uh, and, and lock in funding with ring fencing so that our resolve doesn't waver as time goes on and we, we decide to, uh, to sell off the PPE stockpiles you know, to, to meet other needs or something like that. I think we need to take advantage of this moment. You say you think this is a particularly dangerous century. Why is that in particular? Ultimately, you know, humanity's been around for about uh, 2,000 centuries. And over this time, we've slowly kind of gained information and knowledge about the world around us and how to shape it. Our power has been increasing. Uh, and then it was only, though, about 75 years ago, with the advent of nuclear weapons, that humanity's escalating power finally reached the point where we could, we could cause our own destruction and where the risks that we imposed on ourselves are st- finally outweighed these background risks from the natural environment. So I think that the 20th century, the first that really posed these challenges, but when it comes to inventing new technologies that are ever more powerful, it seems like this century is going to be even more dangerous, and perhaps the next one will be more dangerous again, unless we can get our act together and commit to taking the safety of our species and our civilization uh, more seriously. And where does climate change fit into this? Because it's a, it's a chronic risk rather than an acute risk, at least on the scale of a human lifetime. Yes, uh, it's a slower acting risk than some of these. Uh, nuclear war uh, could be ordered in 15 minutes and a lot of the effects would be felt immediately, whereas climate change operates more on the scale of centuries or, or perhaps decades. So climate change is also going to cause, we know it's going to cause a lot of damage um, and a lot of suffering. But there's also the possibility that it could cause extreme harms, such as billions of deaths or more. Uh, Perhaps it could make the world uninhabitable. But that is, at the moment, still quite speculative. That's not an insult. I think that it's a very serious possibility. But it's one that hasn't been examined in anywhere like the detail in which we've examined the possibility of, of smaller harms, perhaps to larger numbers of people. So I think that this is something where I would say As far as we know, there is still a risk that climate change really could actually be the end of humanity. But we're not not as sure about that as we are about many other things. Okay. Now, your approach to all of this is not just about self-preservation for people alive today, but it's also based on a sort of moral calculus of valuing the lives of people who have yet to be born. So could you take us through that? Yeah. Uh, Derek Parfit, uh, the Oxford philosopher, has a, has a nice example about this. Uh, he suggested to imagine three scenarios. The first, peace. The second, a nuclear war in which 99% of the people on Earth are wiped out. And the, the third is a nuclear war in which 100% of us die. Uh, and obviously the third is worse than the second, which is worse than the first. But he asked, which is the bigger difference? The difference between peace and the, the war that destroys 99% of people, or the 99% and 100? And he suggested, and I think he's right, that actually the, the second difference is bigger. You might not think so in terms of the, the raw number of people uh, die in the event. But the difference is that it wouldn't just destroy our present, uh, but destroy our entire future. And ultimately... Humanity has been around for about 10,000 generations, and we could have tens of thousands of generations to follow. Uh, But if something were to destroy all of us, then that would be unique in that it's irreversible with no way back. Right. So it's a sort of utilitarian calculation. The the sum over the 
potential future trillions of people um, and their happiness compared with with zero if we wipe ourselves out this century. Well, that's that's one way to look at it in terms of the future that's foregone uh, if we were to fail at this moment. Um, and one could think of that in terms of the well-being of all the lives that would be foregone. Or you could think of it in terms of all the achievements, um, all the great you know, works of art and culture and science, uh, finally understanding the laws of our universe that would never get to happen. Uh, but you could also think of it in terms of the past, uh, in terms of this partnership of the generations, where 100 billion people have come before us and have struggled and strived through great hardships to, to pass down this legacy of knowledge that humanity has built up, you know, from, from primitive stone tools all the way to supercomputers. And that also the institutions and the culture that they've built up, and that if we, our generation, were to fail now and, and drop the baton, then in some sense, we'd be betraying, you know, all these people of the past. We would be squandering everything that they've struggled for and, and built up for us. So I think that one can see it quite robustly, either as either in terms of the, the future or in terms of the past. Well, assuming policymakers buy your argument that we should pay more attention to existential risk, what would that mean in practice? Quite a few things. Uh, one is that I think that we should improve our uh, ability to uh, to understand and to track extreme risks of all kinds. Um, this is something that the Cabinet Office does in the UK, um, in the Civil Contingency Secretariat, and I think there could be substantial improvements to how we do that. In particular, taking very seriously risks that act over a longer term and risks that are low probability but very high stakes. Both of those are neglected in the current methodology that they use, where they only consider the next two years, and uh, there's a cap on, on how bad they consider risks to be. One thing we know could pose a threat to life on Earth, because it's done it before, is being hit by an asteroid, which is of course what wiped out the dinosaurs. Now surely you might think, if we spotted one, we'd send Bruce Willis into space to blow it up. But astonishingly, the Hollywood answer to the problem is not necessarily the most sensible response. So how might we actually deal with this threat? Two, one, zero, and liftoff! Later this year, NASA is launching a space probe on a mission called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART. It will travel to an asteroid called Didymos, which is about 800 metres across, and is unusual because it has a moon, about 160 metres across, called Dimorphos. The probe will crash into the moon as part of a test of planetary defence technology become a lot more awareness within the last two decades about the potential hazard of near-Earth asteroids and near-Earth objects in general. Nancy Chabot is a planetary scientist at John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory and one of the coordinators for this NASA mission. Planetary defense is much more than just uh, deflecting asteroids. It's a much larger strategy. And one of the foundations of that is finding and tracking all of the asteroids that are out there. Uh, you need to really assess what the threat is before you would even know how to deal with it. Luckily, we're doing a really good job on things that are a kilometer and bigger. We found over 90% of this population and nothing is on a path to hit the Earth in the near future. But these few hundred meter size objects are, are the concern and actually something the size of Dimorphos, we've only found about 40% of the population so far. And so there's still a lot of these objects that we need to be actively finding and then tracking and assessing throughout this whole time to really understand 
this threat. One of the best protections that we can take is warning time. You want to know about these threats in as much warning time as possible. And that really opens up your option space of what you would do. So what will the impact tell us about deflecting asteroids and how are we going to be able to tell what's happened? Well, that's really why this double asteroid system is the ideal target for this test, because it's a very cost-effective and innovative way to do this. We're, and safe, I should say. So to back up a step, these asteroids are not a threat to the Earth. They're not going to hit the Earth anytime in the near future. We just want to take this step to prove one way to protect the Earth if we needed to before we need it. This double asteroid system, by slamming the spacecraft into the smaller asteroid, we're going to deflect how the smaller asteroid goes around the larger asteroid. It's just a small little nudge. You are deflecting, not disrupting the asteroid. That's an important distinction. The deflection is, even though we need to do this test and we don't know exactly how much ejecta, more predictable than if you start to disrupt the asteroid and make a bunch of other pieces and you don't know where they're going to go or how they're going to split. This is not the preferred method. But the reason that we can measure its deflection so easily is because we're measuring its deflection around the larger moon in this double asteroid system. If we just ran a spacecraft into a 160 meter asteroid right now, you'd have to measure how you deflected the way it goes around the sun. And that's a much more challenging measurement than being able to take advantage of this natural experiment that we have with this double asteroid system. Okay, now, why can't we just do sort of, you know, some maths and the conservation of momentum and say, look, if we crash a spaceship that weighs this much and is going this fast into an asteroid, can't we work this out in advance? I mean, do we really need to do this experiment in this way? What are we learning here? That's a great question. I mean, and uh, and one of the things that we've learned from the asteroids that we have visited with spacecraft is... They're kind of weird looking objects, right? I mean, if you think about the ones that uh, that have been visited, they have these weird shapes. They're not just like a big rock floating around space. They're actually maybe look like a bunch of boulders somehow put together. We're not really ter- sure what the interior structure is. So this makes it really different than sort of like your billiard ball physics, if you will, where you you know crash something in and another thing goes up. We've done all sorts of modeling and we've got a lot of scientists around the world working on running these impact models. And uh, they make a variety of predictions depending on what this asteroid looks like, how you hit it, where you hit it, what the interior structure is. And so this is why we've really advanced to the place where we need to do this test in space on an asteroid of the relevant size to see how it works. Here you are dealing with a potential existential threat to humanity. Has your attitude to your work and and other people's attitude to this kind of work changed as a result of the pandemic? I think what's the pandemic has brought into sharp focus is the importance to take these small steps ahead of time when you have the opportunity. You want to be ready. These things are rare, but if you can take steps to be ready for them, then you'll be in a much better position to deal with them in case that future does materialize. Um, And I think that's also true here for the asteroid deflection. Spending $300 million to crash into a space rock may seem like a strange thing to do when there's a global pandemic raging. Surely the money would be better spent on vaccines or surveillance systems. Here's Hal Hodson again. You could certainly make an argument saying that the $300 million they're going to spend on that mission would be better spent on any number of things, as well as just figuring out if humans are capable of doing this and how to do it. There's also a sort of slightly second-order argument for doing it, which is that when you spend money to go and do difficult things like deflect asteroids, you learn things that you didn't know you were going to learn. 
in areas that you otherwise would have no access to. And so it's a way of exploring unknown unknowns that you just wouldn't get to in other contexts. And I think that that's an underappreciated benefit of exploring these kinds of existential risks. Even while they grapple with the current crisis then, it makes sense for governments to worry about other threats that might emerge in future. We asked all our guests to tell us which potential crisis they think is most deserving of closer attention in the years to come, starting with the philosopher Toby Ord. I think the risk of extreme pandemics, even more extreme than COVID, we know that we've seen pandemics that have been much worse than this in the past, however bad this is. The Black Death killed about one in three people in the entirety of Europe, which was about one in 10 of the world's population. So I think we need to be prepared for even more extreme pandemics. The economists Slavea Chankova. Obesity is a massive crisis. I mean, I think next year, there will be more obese children in the world than their underweight children. So that's a hugely neglected crisis. And I think as the pandemic winds down, the more mundane things like obesity should not be forgotten. Hal Hodson. I think we should pay more attention to antibiotic resistance arising out of the sort of industrial practice around keeping livestock. I think there's quite scary pathogens potentially emerging out of that space. And finally, Nancy Chabot of John Hopkins University and NASA. The biggest risk that keeps me awake at night is climate change. There are so many negative paths that we're going down currently and that's a very real reality. It's not something that might happen, it's something that is happening and I'm concerned what the next decades are going to look like consequently. Thank you to Nancy Shabo, Hal Hodson, Slavea Chankova and Toby Ord. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. This episode was produced by Simon Jarvis and edited by Sandra Schmueli. And if you're not already a subscriber to The Economist, you're missing out. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to subscribe. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist. 